Hello everyone and welcome to episode 553 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have been flat out editing. I have a big project that needs long hours of dedicated editing time. And now I have to admit, I don't actually really need too much motivation to write because I can pretty much motivate myself to to do that. But when it comes to editing, I definitely need some incentives for myself or little rewards to keep me motivated, you know, so that I don't procrastinate because I can certainly do that when it comes to to editing. And regular listeners will know that they're is a unbelievably fantastic cronut shop near me that is a great motivation for me. But I also realize that it's probably not the healthiest reward for me to put in place as a motivation. Plus, the cronuts, for some reason, actually go on hiatus as the weather gets warmer because apparently warm weather isn't conducive to making great cronut pastry. I mean, who knew, right? So I have, I have to replace this reward with a new activity or a new thing, right? Now, years ago, I used to love going to antique shops because I just loved finding vintage things. And I loved imagining the backstory of these things, you know, whether they were books or blowtorches. At one point, I had 47 antique blowtorches, um, vases, little trinket boxes, you name it furniture, of course. Um, But then uh, about 15 years ago, after several decluttering sessions, um, I banned myself from going to these stores because I couldn't help myself. I was like a bowerbird. I know when it started because I went to visit my stepbrother once in the UK and we were in Manchester and he introduced me to this person, um, a friend of his, who was actually, Michael, his name was, and Michael was actually featured on Britain's Most Eccentric People. Anyway, Michael loved collecting. He had like 200 coffee pots just made of plastic, that sort of thing. Then they're they're just the ones made of plastic. Um, Anyway, so he took me antiquing and to car boot sales and stuff like that, and that's where it all started. But anyway, like I said... I've had a drought in that, a self-imposed drought for that on that for the last 15 years because I banned myself from going to the stores because I was just it was just getting ridiculous. And um, so <laughs> uh, the thing is though, even though I have not gone into an antique store for 15 years, I went into one the other day. It's like crack, okay? I went into one the other day because I used it as a reward for editing a huge section of work that I'm doing. And I have to say the floodgates opened again. And what I've done now though, is I've divided the rest of my big editing project into four major sections. And I've even chosen four different antique stores to check out as a reward for completing each of these sections. And the best part is, this is such fun because you know, I can kind of justify it a little bit. The best part is I'm in love with some of the books I'm finding, the vintage books. Last week, I picked up, I've got it in my hand right now, a copy of um, H.G. Wells' uh, novel and Veronica, and it's over 100 years old, and it's just gorgeous to touch and feel and look at, and of course, I'm going to read it as well. I mean, I don't buy these as a serious collector, like for 
value or rare books. I just love the look of them. I love vintage books. Um, Speaking of all things vintage, though, something that has a very vintage vibe is the Bodleian Library at Oxford, of course, the iconic library, which was first opened to scholars in 1602, like forever ago. It is one of the oldest libraries in Europe. And in Britain, it's second in size only to the British Library. So the thing about uh, the Bodleian Library is that it's really far away. Obviously, we're nowhere near Oxford, uh, but I can pre- I can kind of kid myself into thinking that maybe I am doing work in the Bodleian Library. I've talked before about you know ambient soundscapes, so noises or soundtracks that you can play while you're working, right? This is a unique one because it is the sound of the actual Bodleian Library in Oxford University. Now, of course, because it's a library, it's very quiet, but you will hear the occasional chair scrape or pages turning or a cough here and there and even whispering sometimes, but, you know, it's all real. Be careful of the time zone, though, because you won't hear much during Australian daylight hours when students in the UK are sleeping or out partying or whatever. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. And I want to give a big thanks to author and lexicographer Sarah Ogilvie, who has previously worked at the Macquarie Dictionary and at the um, Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, Sarah told me about this hack so that I can pretend that I'm working there surrounded by all that history. Incidentally, Sarah has written an incredible book called The Dictionary People, which is coming out in September here, and I'll be chatting to her in an upcoming episode. But if you see that book, make sure you get it. It's fab. Um, Like I said, I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can pretend that you are also at the Bodleian Library. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Also, I want to let you guys know about our wonderful new self-paced course, Plotting and Planning, which launches Wednesday the 16th of August. And this wonderful course is with internationally best-selling author Kate Forsyth, and she will be leading you on this course to show you how to plot and plan your novel. I've just gone through it, and it's wonderful, it's clear, it's practical, and it is inspirational, as only Kate Forsyth can do, right? It's fantastic. There is a special launch price that's available only until Sunday the 20th of August so midnight Sunday the 20th of August from now till then and that price will never be that low again so do make sure you check it out at writerscentre.com.au slash plotting so if you need some help plotting and planning your novel or want a bit of Kate Forsyth inspiration that's writerscentre.com.au slash plotting Now let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of Bad Summer People, 
by Emma Rosenblum to give away. Are you dreaming of summer holidays? Which, yes, because the weather is getting warmer. This week's giveaway will take you away on an island. But beware, not everyone is who you think they are. I have three copies of Bad Summer People by Emma Rosenblum to give away. Here's the blurb. The families on the island have been vacationing here for years. The Weinsteins, the Metzners, the Grobels, and unlucky in love Rachel Wolfe. Outsiders aren't welcome. That is, except for Robert, the handsome new tennis coach, who some people are going out of their way to make very welcome. But the problem, when everyone knows everyone, is that secrets can't stay secret forever. And when a body is found face down beneath the boardwalk, they realise that maybe one of them is worse than they thought. All right, so just go to writercentercomau slash win. Uh, if you want your chance to win one of three copies of Bad Summer People by Emma Rosenblum. And entries close on the 21st of August. But don't worry if you are at that URL in the future, there'll be some other fantastic competition there for you to enter. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I love this word. I just love saying it. Umbriferous. Umbriferous, that's U-M-B-R-I-F-E-R-O-U-S, umbriferous. Cool, huh? It's an adjective and it means casting or making shade. So you could say the garden on the umbriferous side of the house had always been weak and sickly. There you go. Use that in a sentence this week, umbriferous. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Today, I'm talking to Leslie Gibbs, who is an award-winning, internationally published children's author who writes picture books and chapter books. Her latest picture book is Dinosaur Dads to the Rescue. She is author of more than 15 books for children. Her books include CBCA honour book, Scary Night, CBCA shortlisted book, Searching for Cicadas, Whitley award winner, Fluke, a boat of stars and the hilarious chapter book series Fizz. She's also a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. Thanks so much for joining us today, Leslie. My pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you about so many things, so many things, um, because you write picture books, you write chapter books, you do school visits, you're a busy woman. But let's talk about your latest book that's just being released, Dinosaur Dads to the Rescue. Yes. So can you tell us what it's about? Well, Dinosaur Dads to the Rescue is actually uh, a second book in the Dinosaur Dads series. So I'm so thrilled that I'm getting a little series going with picture books. It's my first series and um, with picture books. So that's really, really exciting. Um, so the first book, Dinosaur Dads, was brought out as a Father's Day book. Um, and it came out in the middle of COVID, um, which was a really lonely time for books to come out. But it did really, really well. So because it did really, really well, I was invited to write another book. So Dinosaur Dads are about three dinosaur fathers and their three dinosaur children, and it's about the kids having fun with their dads in the first book, all the wonderful things that dads like to do with kids. And in this book, um, we sort of look at the physical play that dads can love to do with their children. Um, so that's what Dinosaur Dads is about. Um, so with when I was asked to do another one, I thought, great, I'll, I'll do a dinosaur mum's book. That, wouldn't that be great? And I all, already had ideas for it and basically had it written already. 
but no, they didn't want a dinosaur mum's book. I was told, could you write Dinosaur Dads to the rescue? Um, and I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> that was a really exciting title. So this book was actually uh, written to order, and that can happen sometimes. Um, and for some people that can sort of play on your creativity, that can be quite challenging. But because I absolutely adored this title, Dinosaur Dads to the Rescue, I thought, yes, I'm sure I can do something because these dads are so physical. Um, having a rescue is absolutely perfect for them. So what to do? And then I thought, well, what could they be rescuing that had something to do with Dads and Father's Day? So, of course, they're rescuing dinosaur eggs. So three dinosaur eggs um, have been um, laid and the dads are now in charge for the day where the mums go out hunting. Um, the only problem is a volcano rumbles and the eggs roll out of the nest and into the thick of the forest. And it's now a huge, big egg rescue adventure with the dads and the three kids racing after these eggs as they're rolling around all sorts of places into uh, the forest, into a white rapid river where there are crocodiles to fend off and um, where else? Oh, into quicksand. Anyways, lots of adventure. There's a pterosaur that comes down and takes one. But of course, in the end, they eventually do get all the eggs back safely and they make their way home and they pop them safely into the nest to rest and the mums are coming except there's a problem the eggs are now starting to crack so the poor dads think maybe they've done a terrible job but really of course it's something absolutely wonderful the eggs have hatched and we now have another three little dinosaurs those dinosaur babies and siblings for the dinosaur children so it's a really really happy book um i think one of my favorite pages is the last page uh, because um, the illustrator of this book, Marjorie Crosby Farrell, had a huge challenge. She had to get 12 dinosaurs into a double-page spread. That's a lot of characters for anyone, 12 of them. And she managed to get all 12 in, and it doesn't look squished or squashed or anything. It looks absolutely gorgeous. So I'm so delighted at that. Oh, how adorable. What a great idea for a book and, and a great story. But cast your mind back to when you wrote the first book, where yes. did that idea come from? You know, dinosaurs and dads and all of that. Well, some of it is knowing your audience and that's really, really important. So we're looking at um, you know, quite young children. It could be from zero to um, probably about six or seven for this particular um, picture book. What sort of characters, you know, do children of that age love? Well, kids that age, I know from my own children and from my background in teaching, they really have an affinity with dinosaurs. They find it uh, extremely interesting. All kids seem to go through this phase where they adore them. So I thought, okay, let's look at dinosaurs. I haven't seen dinosaurs done for a, um, a Father's Day book. So I thought that's a great idea. Um, and then I thought, well, for me, you know, I love my dad, I love Father's Day. And so, you know, I, let's have those dinosaurs in a, in a um, Father's Day book. And let's have a look at the way that um, dads play with children. There are a lot of books out there, gorgeous books for Father's Day, and they're very soft about the loving side of dads in a very soft and sensitive way. And I thought, well, you know, dads can show that soft and sensitive side in another way, and they often do that through 
rough and tumble physical play. So that's what I wanted these dinosaurs to do, that rough and tumble physical play that we often see fathers doing with their children. And that was just a different way of showing love and caring. Um, and there's some really caring moments in there in the book, but it's just a little bit different. So um, yeah. you need to find, you have to find that edge and that hook in something different if you're, if you're writing a, a pitch book and you're, and you're going to pitch that to um, a publishing house. Speaking of picture books, uh, how many picture books have you written how, and how many chapter books have you written? Like how many books have you written in total? In total, 15, and there's another two in the pipeline coming. One of those is a third Dinosaur Dad's book and another is a version of Scary Night, which was my very first picture book that I wrote. Oh, gosh, how many have I done? Maybe it's, <laughs> is it, um, I think it's 11 picture books and wow. chapter books. And then there are some thing, books that I, anthologies that I'm in as well, poetry in particular. Yeah. So with the picture books, now Dinosaur Dads, the series, it's it's a visual feast as well as being um, such a great story, right? But what's interesting is that um, not all picture book authors meet or even know their picture book illustrators before they start working with them. And, in fact, sometimes they never even meet them <laughs> through the entire process, although they may discuss things via phone and email and Zoom. So in terms of your relationship with the illustrator of the Dinosaur Dads series, um, how did you, how well did you know the illustrator and what kind of, um, during the production process while they're illustrating, what kind of interactions and feedback can you give them typically? Mm. I mean, you're right about, you know, we have different relationships with different illustrators and I don't know all of my illustrators. Some of them I haven't met before. I haven't met Judy Watson, who illustrated Searching for Cicadas for me, which was shortlisted. Um, but with Such a gorgeous with, book. Love that yeah. book. Mm. With Dinosaur Dads, I did know Marjorie beforehand and I knew her through the Children's um, Book Council um, meetings that I would go to, my particular sub-branch, uh, the Northern Sydney sub-branch. And I met her on... Um, we went for a trip to the Blue Mountains to visit Margaret Hamilton in her Pinerolo um, book cottage. Um, and I met her there and we talked a lot on the bus. And I, one thing I really remember, there were two younger girls behind me uh, asking me whether I would illustrate my own books. They thought that it was fairly simple and that I, you know, perhaps should illustrate my own picture books. And Mar I knew Marjorie was in front of me as, a, as an illustrator and, you know, I just said, look, it's, it's, it's a really tricky thing to do. No, I can't illustrate my own books. Yes, I can draw, and I can draw pretty well. But it's far, you know, different to that and, and a much greater skill of that visual storytelling. And, um, and then they asked me, you know, well, do you get to tell the illustrator exactly what you want them to draw? And I said, well, no. I said, I don't tell them exactly what I want to draw, um, want them to draw, because they, they are a, a creative person and they they're an expert in what they do. I'm the expert at the writing. They're the expert at the illustrating. And if I start telling them what to do, it's going, not going to be a great book. It's not going to be as good as it could be. They have to have the freedom to do exactly what they want. Um, and that's that's what happens. And I, I said to Marjorie, she was in front of me, I said, Marjorie, you wouldn't want me telling you 
what to what to draw if we do the picture book together she said god no so <laughs> absolutely because and, that's and, a big but, mistake isn't it that some new or new picture book authors um, or aspiring picture book authors think that they can write a whole series of instructions yes. to an illustrator but the reality is if you're dealing with an experienced uh, picture book illustrator they bring a whole other level of of meaning of nuance of things that you haven't even thought of Absolutely. because they know how to do it right yeah and the things you haven't even thought of is so important and but I do get to have my say that is something that does happen the storyboard will come through and that's a series of sketches laid out as to how you know what illustrations would perhaps go with which particular text and so on and I get to look at it at that stage, it's usually in pencil, there's no colour. Can Sometimes it's quite sketchy. Other times it could be very close to what the illustration is going to be. But that's the point at which I get to have my say. Now, I don't say it to the illustrator. I say it to the editor. So if I say something really stupid or offensive, <laughs> they don't hear about it. They're a buffer. Um, and then if there's something that I've said that I feel, um, you know, has, has some merit to it, then the editor would put that to to the illustrator and discuss that and see if that's something that they might um, want to include or change or what have you. So you do get a say, but you don't want to be prescriptive. Um, you've got to let the illustrator do what they do. And I think it, that comes when a person doesn't quite understand that you are just, it's not your book. Um, it's not all about me and my book and these people are doing this book for me. No, I'm providing a text and we are all together in this joint creative process making a book together. And that is as much the editor's book as it is the whole publishing house, as it is mine, as it is the illustrators. We are all sort of, you know, equal in that way. It's absolutely a joint project. And I think if you get your head around that, um, you're going to do a lot, a lot better you're going to get a better product too. At the end of it, your book's going to be sensational. Yes. Now, what age would you say picture books are generally for? Well, picture books actually can be for everyone. Well, yes, <laughs> yes that's can true. Be, but in general, you know, I mean, we do have a picture books that are for adults, but mostly from birth through to about five or six years of age, um, but through into primary as well. Um, you know, up to about 11 and 12, there are, are books for older kids, absolutely, for sure. And then, as I said, adults will look at picture books as well. Yes. Um, but generally, in my mind, when I'm writing them, I think about, is this an early childhood book, which would be for children sort of zero to four years of age? Or is this a book that can go uh, for older children into primary, sort of from your five-year-olds through to your seven or eight-year-olds? And that will play a big part in um, the word count in particular. So mm. I kind of have sort of two numbers in my mind. If it's early childhood, I'll be thinking, do not go above 300 words. Mm -hmm. And if it's for older children, I'm sort of thinking, please don't go above 500. You can, but it becomes harder to sell it. You know. Yes, definitely. And then you not only do picture books, you have a very successful chapter book series. Um, what For listeners who don't know, uh, what age group, well, well, actually, first, if you can define what a chapter book is and what age group that is for. Well, chapter books are generally for a six to nine-year-old audience. And um, it, the book sits between um, your picture books, which are the first books kids uh, are exposed to, and it sits between the picture book and a middle grade novel. It sits right in that um, spot for a six to nine-year-old. And it's a really 
unique sort of place. It's um, a very special audience. They're just learning how to read. And that's incredibly important to understand because everything that you do in terms of your language structure, vocabulary, etc., are going to be modified to support this newly independent reader. Whereas with the picture books, mum or dad or, or an adult would sit with the child and you'd read it together, they are now reading independently. They're often extremely excited and motivated because they want to read a book that they've seen older kids read, something that looks like a novel. So a chapter book is the first book that where the story is long enough to divide into chapters. Um, but unlike a middle grade novel, it is full of pictures but unlike a, um, a picture book, generally they're not in colour, they're generally black and white, but there will be pictures on every page and the pictures are there to help with comprehending the text. So often they are a, a, a directly, a picture that directly shows what's happening in the text, where in a picture book, the illustrator has a great deal more freedom and they may bring in information um, and themes and things that do not appear in the text. So it's quite different. So with a picture book, you've got 50% of the meaning in the text, 50% of the meaning brought by the illustration. That's not so with the chapter book. The meaning is in the text and it's supported by the illustrations. The text is much smaller. So, um, you know, in middle of grade novels are 30,000, 40, 50,000 words but your um, chapter book is a great deal smaller. The sort of sweet spot sort of around that 5,000 to sort of 9,500, something like that, word count. And depending if it's for a younger age group or a little bit older within that six to nine age group, you would, you know, vary that word count a bit. But as you know, I go into all of this in my course, don't I? Writing chapter books for six to nine-year-olds. You started off writing picture books and then you decided I'm going to move the age group and try mm. chapter books what prompted that well the fist series um started as an idea for a picture book but it was just um too big an idea and when I stripped it down to make it 500 words it was a skeleton of an idea and I thought okay this is not working in this format this idea just needs to I'll let give it some room and allow it to grow so that it, it, you know, I could make the characters come to life and the story to be quite, you know, full and satisfying. And so it ended up around that five and a half thousand words, which was such a sweet spot for um, a chapter books. Uh, so that's how it, it came. It came from an idea for, um, you yeah, know, for, for a, um, a picture book but it was you know it was um inspired by my own dogs I own two Jack Russells and they are so naughty but they're bold and clever and super fast and that's where you know the idea came from for this idea for writing a story about um, a dog named Fizz who is um small and white and fluffy but his absolute heart's desire is to become a police dog and this is what the story is about and and it lends itself to a lot of, of fun a lot of humor and kids have been really enjoying it it's done super super well over in america which i am so thrilled about it's such a gorgeous series. Now, you mentioned the course that you teach at the Australian Writers' Centre, writing chapter books for six to nine-year-olds. For people who are interested, what do you cover in that course? 
So I cover some really practical aspects that students absolutely must know in this course. Um, one of the biggest things is an understanding of the audience. So I'll talk at great length about the audience that you're writing for because six to nine year old students have um, very specific reading needs. This is the first time that they have um, embarked on reading independently. And there are some really specific things that your editors are going to be looking for in that text um, to see if you have supported um, that reader in terms of language and vocabulary, in terms of sentence length and complexity. And you may not have thought of these things. Your mind might be on the interesting story, but there's some practical things that you really need to know. And it's extremely specific for a chapter book audience, very different to um, middle grade novels, very different to picture books. And I will tell you all of those things. And I know for my students that they love the practical aspect of it because if they've got text written at home, they can take the information I've given them, apply it to the text that they've written, and immediately they're going to see um, a difference in what they've done. And of course, if they, when they finish the course, if they have sent into me their final assignment, um, I've looked at it and given them even more feedback on what they're doing to see if they've understood the course and let them um, know anything that perhaps they didn't quite understand. I'll pick that up. And I also have a really broad look at the piece they've given me and um, pick up other aspects of their writing as well. There's often a, something that um, I see quite often when I get the um, assessments and that is um, not always putting your character front and center in the story, your main character. They're often sitting there and just reacting to what's around them rather than being the driving force in the story. That's something that I often have to um, speak about. But if you do the course, please do that final summer. I love getting your writing in. Don't be frightened. <laughs> um, apart from writing, I know that you also do talks and school visits and things like that. How does the mix work for you? Because I also know you're a busy mum. So how what what's the mix in your life and where does writing fit? Where does school visits fit? Where does rest of your life fit? Because people often want to know the practical aspect of being an author along with everything else that you need to do in life. <laughs> yes, right. Um, well, for me, um, writing works really nicely because I do it while my children are at school. Um, but they are old enough now so that I can do a great deal more of the school visits. So I wasn't always able to do school visits when they were younger. Um, and sometimes I would have to do a school visit that was early in the day so I could be there in the afternoon to make sure that I could pick them up, etc. Um, but you, it's really flexible. So I think as um, for a family, for a mother as I am, um, the writing is really flexible. I can make it work around... Um, the routines that I have with my children. So in that way, it's absolutely sensational. It's fantastic. And now my kids are getting into their teens. I can now venture out even further, go further afield with my school school visits, which I absolutely love doing because my background is in teaching. So I absolutely adore going out and um, visiting schools and seeing my readers and encouraging them with their reading and giving them reading, reading and writing tips and things like that. It's 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 a really interesting lifestyle. Um, I feel um, maybe um, that people don't uh, know that or there's something you can really look forward to if you want to become a writer. It is super interesting. It's really flexible. 
and um, you just meet the nicest people. <laughs> so typically when you do a school visit, when you do your school visits, uh, a lot of people make the assumption that you only visit the grade, the, the age group that you write for. Is that the case or do you also talk to, you know, uh, high school or older primary or whatever? Well, um, I, I do think that the the books that you write um, in, the you know, they do um, dictate who you get to see. And so when I, have, you know, I write a lot of picture books, so I do see a lot of preschools and um, I go into primary school where I do a lot with the year one, kindy year one, year two. But because I write the FIS books and because I have some picture books that are aimed at older primary children, like Searching for Cicadas, um, I'm often someone who, who is booked for doing children from kindergarten to year six. But I'm rarely asked for high school, I have to say. I would need to have a book that reached into, into that um, age group. However... Um, you know, as a writer, you have something to say about writing to all age groups. Um, and so I'm often booked to talk to adults, of course, about about writing. And we, I totally get that when you're talking to, well, obviously adults, but, you know, primary, you're talking to them about writing tips and stuff like that. For the younger kids, are you going into that kind of craft or what What typically is your talk to those kids? Well, if it's preschool, no. It's going to be <laughs> making sure that they have a fantastic time engaging with literature. And, and I'll have songs and poems and puppets and dress up and all sorts of things like that to get them very enthused. If it's primary school and even, you know, kindergarten, included kinder year one year two um you know because my background is in in teaching i i know what they're being asked to do in terms of their writing and i will certainly um fit what i'm you know going to say to them into what i know they're learning and it's probably um you know a lot more than you think that they're learning they they know the basic structure of narrative texts you know that they're they're doing their their introduction and they're doing a complication and a resolution would be sort of the terms that they are using at school and I'll use those terms that I know that they're familiar with to talk about um, story writing so um, yeah absolutely uh, even with kindy I'm, I'm talking about how to make their stories more interesting choosing so, characters you know things like that they can all benefit from that um, that'd be so cute to read their stories. Um, so with 15 books on average, are you aiming for a certain number of books per year or like, you know, what's your goal in terms of output? Oh God, hundreds a year. <laughs> it all like heaps and heaps each year. Um, sometimes you'll have books that, um, you know, you might have two or three taken, um, accepted for publication by a publishing house in a year. But that doesn't mean that they all come out at the one time. Some of them have a very, very long lead time. If it's a picture book, you know, you're going to wait at least a, a year and a half before it comes out. And if you've got had them picked up by the same, several by the same publishing house, they'll stretch them out over several years. So, um, you know, you would like to have, um, you know, certainly a book coming out each year. If you can have a couple of books, that's great, as I've got coming out next year. I think I think when the FIS books came out, they came out all in the one year plus some some other books as well I think I might have had about six books in the one year come out so it's it's so varied and you often don't have um any control over 
when they come out. Mm-mm. Now, <laughs> but with if, this... look, I, sorry, sorry. I, think, I think you're right in that, you know, you, if you can keep, everybody wants to keep having books coming out regularly so that so that you keep your readership. It's really important if you can do that. But that's something that's easy to say. <laughs> it's a lot harder to do. And I think when COVID came, that sort of slowed some publications up for many authors at the moment, yeah. And so you mentioned that Fizz is especially popular in the US. Mm. So can you just um, talk us through, Did that was that a separate deal um, or was that organised through your Australian publisher? And um, why do you think it's been it's got such traction there? Well, it's, it's organised through the publishing house, through their foreign rights department, and um, every publishing house wants to try and get other publishing houses to purchase books that they have published um, and publish them in through their publishing house in, in their country because the publishing house will make money out of that and then that money will also flow to the author and, and illustrator. Um, so, you know, we're... we're any book that a publisher publishes, they want to try and get the absolute most out of it, and foreign rights is really, really important. And Fizz went to six foreign rights um, territories. It did extremely well. That was through Alan and Unwin. Big shout-out to Alan and Unwin. That was amazing, the amount of foreign rights that they got for the Fizz series. And it did the best in um, in America. It's done a lot better, you know, in America than it has in Australia. So why did it take off there? I'm not sure I know because <laughs> I think they're absolutely fabulous and they're a wonderful story. They should have gone, you know, off like a rocket everywhere. I think maybe it has to do with this particular publishing house, Kane Miller, and the unique way that they sell their product. So it doesn't go into bookstores straight away. They have um, Osborne and Moore sellers who sell the books, kind of like you would have Tupperware where someone would sell Tupperware to their friends, they would have parties and sell them. Um, the Osborne sellers go into schools and they will uh, organise festivals for schools where they hand sell your books. And I think it's the fact that they hand sell the books. It's their business, their personal business, like a franchise, and they sell the books, hand sell them. And then eventually they'll end up in bookstores. It's the last place they go. So they are an amazing company that really knows how to sell books. And... Um, once, you know, a book gets a bit of traction and you get enough readers, then it can be a snowball. So if it's a good book, uh, the kids find out about it and they want to want to read about it. They want that book too. So I'm just so, um, you know, delighted that Kane Miller um, have been able to sell so many for me. And I get a lot of fan mail. That's so exciting. Aww. I love that. <laughs> Videos, they show me pictures of them dressed up as, as fears. And, oh, that's so um, cute. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's an absolute delight. Yeah, aspiring but, um, writers, some aspiring writers often wonder, well, if I'm going to, um, if I want my book to be successful in another country, like, well, especially in the US, I need to do a lot of promotion there. Do you think that has been the case with you? Did Have you consciously done promotion in the US or did it take off anyway? It just took off anyway. No, I didn't consciously do promotion there I um some of the Osborne sellers contacted me and did ask if I would do some zoom visits with the the kids in America which I have done quite a few of those now but um that that's not the driving force behind behind the book um just taken off off. fantastic so it's funny sometimes you can go particularly with picture books you can run around and do a lot of um 
promotion and it and it doesn't really get you very far. It's a funny thing. Um, but when this when it's right, it's right and it does take off all on its own. Um, and finally, let's end with what would your top three writing tips be for people who want to be children's authors, so specifically writing for children? Okay, well, first of all, and this is something that would have heard before, you need to read extensively in, in the area of which you want to write. Um, a lot of authors, if you talk to them, they were once school teachers, <laughs> a lot of them. And when they were school teachers, they read a lot of books to a lot of different children. So you need to not only read uh, extensively um, picture books or chapter books or middle grade novels, whatever it is that you want to write, um, you need to read them to that target audience. If you can get hold of them, that makes a big difference. Then you find out the things that they laugh at, um, the things that they found a bit challenging to understand. I mean, it's it, it really helps you learn. Um, I think in terms of when you sit down to write, this is something that Francis Watts told me and it stuck with me. Um, always finish what you start. Even if you know it's not good enough for publication, just finish it. Because otherwise, you know, you get really good at writing beginnings. You might get um, good at writing endings, uh, sorry, middle, the middle of the story, but you never get good at writing the ending because you've given up beforehand. You thought this isn't good enough. So you have to practice writing endings. Um, so finish your your work. Make that something really important. Finish what you do so you get good at writing those endings because it's often the ending that clinches the deal. Um, you know, editors want to read right to the end and know that you know how to end a story in a satisfying way. So finish. Um, what else? Um, I don't think it's necessary to write every day. You do uh, or you don't? I don't think so. You I don't, don't think mm-hmm. that's sort of practical advice that you have to you know write every day, but write when you can. And um, I think the most important thing that I did was I did courses. Um, when I started, um, I didn't know anything um, about how to get published. I had no contacts. I thought, how am I going to do this? And I found um, places like the Australian Writers' Centre. Um, and that's where you find all the courses. You do them, you learn. I'm, I'm, I think because my background's in education, educating yourself is really important to me. So courses were incredibly important to me. and. Um, meeting up with other people, getting into the community. So you can get into the community via places like the Australian Writers' Centre because often the courses will end um, with um, your other fellow writers um, getting together in Zoom visits and things like that and and still keeping in contact with one another and helping one another. Um, uh, Things like that and joining the Children's Book Council and going to their meetings um, that's where you make opportunity and you, know, you find opportunity at these places. Um, you, you'll meet um, editors and other authors and illustrators and they'll invite you to things. They'll know that you're looking to do something and they're looking for someone to, to write something and you might get invited to do it. So um, just get involved in the community. Find your tribe, which I think I've heard you say before, Valerie. Find <laughs> your tribe is really important. All right, wonderful. Well, congratulations on Dinosaur Dads to the Rescue. Everyone go get yourself a copy and also obviously get the first one, Dinosaur Dads, and we can't wait for the next one. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insights with us today, Leslie. My pleasure. Thank you, Valerie. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Leslie. Now, before I leave you, I wanted to give you this fun fact. Did you know this? 
The European Free Trade Association is made up of four European nations. That's Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway and Switzerland. Bear with me, I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, the official working language of the EFTA, the European Free Trade Association, is English, even though none of the nations is an English-speaking country. In fact, none of the four countries even has English as an official language. The seven official languages across the four countries are French, German, Icelandic, Italian, Norwegian, Romansh, and Sami. And yet, the official working language is English. There you go. Fun fact for you. All right, that brings me to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been great to hang out with you this week, and I hope you join me again uh, next week. If you're not connected with us on social media, please do join the Facebook community on, um, well, on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It'd be great to see you in there and feel free to connect with me on social media as well. I am at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and I'm over at Living My Other Double Life over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.